0: Welcome to the ADHD in Isolation podcast where we talk all things ADHD. Today I am i feel really privileged to have someone with uh, a wealth of experience in all kinds of areas related to ADHD and that's Emma Woodhouse. Hi Emma.
1: Hello, hi. Thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this.
0: Yeah, no problem at all. I, I wondered if you could start off by giving an idea about some of your experience because it's fascinating, all the fields you've worked in.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I have a slightly unconventional um, career path, but my background is in psychology. And I worked at the Institute of Psychiatry and the Morsley um, in both research and the clinics there on uh, autism and ADHD. Um, And of course, if you're working with one, you're working with the other. So I worked across the Institute of Psychiatry in the Morsley for about 14 years. And I also trained as an integrative therapist. uh, So I'm registered with the BACP and worked at the National Autism Unit, which is an inpatient unit uh, for adults with autism uh, spectrum disorders. And then one of my main interests within neurodevelopmental conditions is uh, in forensic populations. So prisons and secure hospitals. So that's sort of my particular area of interest.
0: Okay. I think we're going to pick up on a few of those things, things later on, but it's nice to have a a little summary to start on. Could you, could you maybe give um, some of the listeners uh, just a broad rundown of what people mean when they talk about neurodevelopmental disorders?
1: Okay so often ADHD and and autism spectrum disorders are kind of lumped in within an umbrella term of mental health. Um, In actual fact they are neurodevelopmental disorders and by that we mean that it's to do with brain development. So if you have autism or ADHD or for example intellectual disability it means that this is to do with the development of your brain and it will be present from from the beginning of your life, with the exception of acquired brain injury, uh, which is sort of a different topic. But um, so they will be there from the beginning. They may not be diagnosed until later in life, maybe later in childhood or perhaps even in adulthood, but in terms of a condition, they have been there from the beginning. It's a bit different from um, something like psychosis as a a mental health condition where there is a particular onset. So um, it might sort of occur at a particular time point uh, and there be an onset of psychosis. So, other than the, the uh, brain injury uh, scenario, you know, you, you're usually looking at um, these symptoms being present from early childhood,
0: right? And and how does I mean, we've got there's a whole range of what they call neurodevelopmental disorders or conditions. What's the right lexicon to use here? Disorder, condition? Uh,
1: it's a very very interesting question. I mean. There's so many discussions around the terminology and the the language that we use to describe autism, ADHD, and actually, I think there is no general agreement on what on on terminology that uh, make keeps everybody happy. Um, usually, when I'm working with individuals or families, I will find out what you know what they're comfortable with as a term. Certainly, uh, many people prefer the term condition um, over disorder, and uh, think that actually that it's people are only experiencing impairment because our society is not um, well equipped uh, or um, it's not very w- well set up for people, so that's why they experience impairment. Some people who argue that the term disorder should be used will say, well, in order to get a diagnosis you need impairment. And so inherently if you have impairment then that's what you know what leads to us describing it as a disorder over a condition. Other people um, prefer the term neurodiverse, but in terms of giving a diagnostic label, you know, we're often describing it either as a disorder or as a condition. the The formal diagnoses in the in the uh, DSM and the ICD talk about uh, use the term disorder.
0: Right, it's an interesting point there, isn't it? Though, because because you could argue that perhaps in uh, in in a different way of of schooling or in 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 a, in a... In perhaps a more understanding society, some of the disorderly elements of ADHD might not be so exaggerated. You know that they that actually it's, it's a it's a funny one actually that that rather than saying that someone is in, inherently disordered, yeah, um, I'm not saying that that's I'm not taking a side on which way is the right way to to say it. I'm just saying that's that's an interesting one.
1: Mm. I think, it's a, I think it is a really, really interesting point. And actually, we talk a lot about impairment because impairment is key to a diagnosis, whether you're talking about ADHD or autism. But actually, impairment is so dependent on the person's environment. So, for example, actually, there's a lovely um, documentary called Autism and Me by Chris Packham. I'm not sure if you've seen it. No, I haven't. And he it does a lot of work with the National Autistic Society and he has a diagnosis of autism. And actually, the, the way that he's currently functioning is that he is involved in work which is around his uh, special interest in animals he lives uh, separately from his partner he's in a relationship but they live separately which i think could be quite a good idea (laughs) and he kind of lives somewhere i think in uh somewhere quite remote in in the i think in the new forest actually so you know it's not to say that he doesn't have impairment in day-to-day life but actually if you picked him up and put him into a kind of nine to five office environment with, you know, living with a partner, you know, with different expectations in a different environment, my guess would be that his impairment would be much greater, not because he's more severely autistic, but because his environment is less suitable for him. So when we think about ADHD, if you think about things that many children with ADHD struggle with, it will be, you know, the demand, you know, many of the demands that they are experience at school which is to sit down be quiet keep still and concentrate.
0: It's interesting you say that so so from a from a personal perspective I I've ADHD and and for the most part I've been quite lucky um since secondary school to be accommodated in, in university and and then in my current job where I can I can sort of flit about and do different things and you know be a bit ADHD and it's all right. But the the, the most impaired I, I felt for years was when I took a an office job. Um I took a job and it was a nine to five and it was quite, you know, it was doing the same things again and again and again and I just couldn't cope at all. And it, it was it was a bizarre kind of moment of re-realization for me of my impairments you know yeah
1: absolutely i think a lot of people will describe that when they are in situations that are really not well matched to their strengths and uh, then they're sort of being judged from the expectations of a kind of, of neurotypical you know, well, neurotypical expectations and actually having uh an environment, that would be a job or a home environment or relationship, that is well suited to your strengths and also to where people struggle is going to have a huge impact on the degree of impairment.
0: Um Jumping back a little bit to neurodevelopmental disorders, um, I wondered if you could speak a little bit about some of the common conditions or disorders that ADHD is associated with.
1: Absolutely. And actually, when you're, when you're working with children or adults with Uh, ADHD, you're very commonly working with another condition as well. So um, previously, in the previous version of the DSM, we now on DSM five, which is a diagnostic statistical manual of psychiatric disorders, DSM five now allows people to have a diagnosis of both ADHD and autism. Now previously, it was thought that if that you couldn't have both conditions together, and that autism would sort of trump ADHD. There's been mu- much more research in that area, and we now know that that's not the case. And that actually, many people, many people do have both ADHD and autism together. So that's one of the comorbidities. And of course, one that I work with a lot because my other uh, area is around autism. But also in ADHD, you're more likely to um, to see people with things like substance misuse or addiction, potentially antisocial behaviours, anxiety, depression, eating disorders, um, specific uh, learning difficulties, things like dyslexia or developmental um, coordination disorder. So if you are working with ADHD, you're likely uh, often to be working with something else as well, which is why sometimes you know, well, you always have to think about the the whole person and their individual struggles, and um, when you're thinking about interventions.
0: What about some of the some more challenging profiles? And what I mean by that is is. Are you finding that, well, let's take your work in forensics, for instance, are Mm -hmm. you finding that maybe that you're getting a lot of people with ADHD and conduct disorder or um, a lot of people with, you know, um, are, are there any real, are there any common profiles that are coming up again and again and again of people that are really struggling just with life generally?
1: Yeah, I mean, conduct disorder um, is one of the common comorbidities and oppositional defiant disorder. Um, Once you get into adulthood, you're looking more at kind of antisocial behaviour and potentially antisocial personality disorder. Not all, not everybody with conduct disorder will go on to um, have antisocial personality disorder, but that is one of the presentations that you, you may see together. And I'd say substance misuse. so many you know many 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 people with adhd um will look to alcohol and drugs to self-medicate and there's a a kind of complex uh combination of reasons why people might be more likely to get involved with substance misuse so that's one of the the key things that people struggle with as well in prisons you know we we see i mean the research it indicates that around 25 percent of prisoners meet full criteria for adhd which is a phenomenal number of people many of them undiagnosed
0: yeah very disturbing figure mm. given that it's what five percent of the population well less than five percent right yeah of the population um moving over then to to adhd in adults generally can you give a give an idea of how i mean i think a lot of people will be familiar at least with the stereotypical idea of adhd in in childhood yes um at least in a sense of the hyperactive kids i think more and more people are becoming aware of the inattentive kids yeah um and therefore probably the the kids with a combined set of symptoms um in, in adulthood, I don't think people maybe have, have, have such a good idea of what ADHD might look like. So could you maybe talk a little bit about, about that?
1: Sure. Well, I, th- I suppose the first thing to say is that we're looking at 18 different symptoms of inattention, hyperactivity and impulsivity. Now, people do not have to have all of those symptoms to have a diagnosis. And also, um, there are kind of three categories that people may fall into if they have a diagnosis of ADHD, they may have the combined type, which you can probably guess is a combination of inattention and hyperactivity and impulsivity, or they may have a predominantly um, inattentive subtype or the predominantly hyperactive impulsive subtype. So it largely depends on the the kind of um, subtype that you're talking about. And also how you know, within that how people and different people present. So absolutely. I think many people, when you talk about ADHD, it conjures up this idea of a, a kind of a young boy bouncing off the walls. Um, and that's what many people think about. Um, in adulthood, I'm still astounded on a regular basis by the number of people, including professionals, who it's just, well, it's just not on their radar. You know, even asking things like, well, can adults have ADHD? It's, a, you know, thinking of it much more as a as a childhood condition. We do know that in terms of ADHD symptoms and presentation that they the symptoms may do decrease over time for many people. And for something like autism, the symptoms tend to be more stable over, over the lifespan. But depending, again, depending on the research that you're looking at, around a third of people diagnosed in childhood will continue to, to meet full criteria into their 20s. Um, the, some of the symptoms may decline after that. But what you often get is somebody who had a met full criteria in childhood and has continuing sort of part and they're in partial remission. So they do still have some symptoms, they still have some impairment, but they may not meet the full diagnostic criteria. And that might be for a number of reasons. So. You know if you think about again we've talked about school and the expectations around that if you have somebody who has reached adulthood they may well have developed their own strategies so for example rather than um, a young child who might just get up and run around you might have an adult who will make excuses to get up and say oh i just need to go to the loo i just need to go and get a glass of water when actually they don't really they just need to get up so it, it may be that um, the way it presents is a bit more subtle A lot of the external restlessness um, people will uh, kind of rather than it being observable uh, clearly observable it may be that it's more internal restlessness so people are experiencing um, you know a very uncomfortable feeling internally um, but it's not quite so obvious as as somebody kind of you know running around bouncing off the walls in terms of inattentive symptoms you know that's it can be around organisation, con- concentration. It's interesting that this term of inattention, because actually, really, and I think that can be a bit misleading, because what we mean when we say inattention is really that people are struggling to sustain and focus their attention on one thing for a, for a period of time. Because actually, people with ADHD are very often able to attend to lots of things. In fact, so many that it becomes it's difficult for them to fo- focus their attention on one specific thing so perhaps not inattention isn't quite the right way of thinking about it it's almost like it's over over attending to everything and all the stimulants so in adulthood the hyperactive impulsive symptoms may not be as obvious as you see in children and of course many people have learned to compensate or find strategies that uh, work for them. Some of them may be helpful, kind of using I don't know electronics and uh, you know phones and electronic diaries with reminders. Some of them, the ways, the strategies to help, um, may be around smoking cannabis because it calms them down. So, as with everything, it varies.
0: Are there any really sort of novel strategies you've seen among adults with with ADHD? Just they they found a way to. are there any common ones that you find among adults with adhd the ways that they that they cope
1: do you know i think the um the increased use of um phones has been a major one for many many people um because previously with older phones they you know cannot do what could not do what they can now so many people really very heavily rely on their life being organized on the phone with reminders, with lists, with things like that, you know, and there's specific apps that people can download that are specifically developed for people with ADHD. And I think that makes a really big difference to to many, many people. Some people just completely switch their, um, their day round. So, you know, sleep is a huge issue with ADHD. And I know of some people who, if they are able to, and if they're in a job that allows them to, they will be, they'll really be working at very unusual times, like they'll be up, doing their work at two in the morning because that's when they function.
0: Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the same sometimes. Yeah. I'll, I'll sometimes do my best work when the whole rest of the world's asleep. Yeah.
1: Yes. So in some jobs that's, you know, that's possible. Um, and in, of course if you're in a you know, the office nine to five job you described, not so much.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I I'm, I kind of, proselytize, if that's the right word, um, the use of lists, mm. I, I even even often to people without ADHD. But I just, the lists were so transformative to me. Yes, I think for a whole a whole load of reasons. I think it, it gave me a structure to um, I get a sense of reward from from doing a task. I think it it allowed me to get a lot of things that were bouncing around my head onto paper and therefore out of my head, you know? Um, Mm. and, and I just found that it it meant that I was actually able to do things, you know, without getting overwhelmed. Um, so I try and tell, tell people to at least give lists a try. I think they're fantastic. I don't know what it is about just how they get in into my psyche and, and and help me work, but it's a very simple thing to do, but, uh, yeah
1: yeah and as you say i think it's effective for a lot of people with and without adhd but I mean, there is something very satisfying about crossing something off the list yeah. and of course yeah. we always say and again this applies to people with and without adhd but you know maybe particularly helpful for people with adhd is that it's really important to break things down into very small steps so that you're not saying you know i don't know if you've got um a huge report to write, that's going to Says me he's just finished a 15 page report. <laughs> it took me ages. That um, you actually break that down to smaller steps. So I'm going to do this section of the report rather than just the whole report. So you can actually um, break these down to smaller steps. And when you've a- accomplished something, you can cross that off and you're getting the kind of uh, positive feeling of of having completed something. But breaking it down to those small, small steps is really important.
0: I often start with the easiest task on the yes. on the list as well, just to yeah. just to get my sort of the engine of my brain going, and then yes. and then build up as well. Yeah. Um, why Why is it so Why is it so difficult for adults to to get a diagnosis? Why um we, we find that you know adults come and speak to the support group and and say that it's been difficult. I know that a couple of um, universities and colleges have reported that they've had a lot of people. A lot of students coming to student support saying they found it to be impossible to get a diagnosis, mm. um, and they really feel like they have it. Can you talk a little bit about why it might be s- difficult for an adult to get a diagnosis?
1: Yeah, I th- I think a big part of it is still this I, this way it's conceptualized as a you know and often thought of as being a childhood condition of the the idea that people the thing that springs to mind when people think about ADHD is not generally adulthood it's not generally females and also i think a lot of people um will write or um, adhd off as a possibility because they don't understand the diagnostic criteria or they don't understand the different presentations so you hear people say well they can't have adhd they um they were able to you know sit down through this whole assessment and you think well um okay have we thought about you know but they're displaying lots of um symptoms related to you know difficulties with sustaining attention so have we written off the whole of uh you know adhd and, and the subtypes based on the fact that they're not running around the room also i think things like uh, there's a the phenomena which you'll of course know about um referred to as hyper focus so when people are able to focus on something they're very interested in very intensely and people will often say well we can't have adhd because they can focus on that for a really long period of time so there's lots of, it's a bit like you know i see this a lot in autism as well they can't have autism they've got good eye contact and people will make us you know kind of judgment based on their generic and general understanding of adhd and often write it off at very early stages before you know before the referral process
0: what we find as well is that often, or well, because it's such a hereditary condition that, that we often have parents coming at, to us with initially because their 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 child has a diagnosis of ADHD or they suspect their child has a diagnosis of ADHD. And um, they themselves then are aware that become aware that they have a diagnosis of ADHD. Yes. And so so often to support a family finding that the support isn't just for the child, it's for the parents, and it makes it difficult if the parents are having such a hard time getting a
1: yes, absolutely. Getting a
0: diagnosis.
1: We see this in, in uh, autism as well and ADHD. It's a really key time when we see adults presenting to services is because their child has um, received a diagnosis and they the more they learn about it, they suddenly think, hold on a second, this is me. So we tend to see people presenting to services for a diagnosis. Some key changes, often around transitions, so it might be a huge one, is around the the transition from primary to secondary school because that's a, a tremendous change in terms of executive function demands in terms of you know social and emotional demands often at university when people are you know the demands again increase hugely and having having a family having children um certainly have one really interesting case in mind where uh he was in his 30s very very kind of borderline was he going to get a diagnosis of ADHD his brother very very clearly had it had a diagnosis and um, in childhood and um, sort of and still met criteria for the, for a full diagnosis of ADHD in adulthood um, but the the guy in his 30s had had really um, he sort of found a job that suited him quite well he had, was in a relationship which kind of suited him quite well and it was decided that actually although he had a lot of the trait he had a lot of the symptoms he didn't clearly meet the criteria for impairment about a year later he became a father and the demands increased so much uh that all of his strategies that had been in place were no longer working so effectively so he went from you know just about keeping things together and, you know, in a way that worked. And then this huge transition into being a parent uh, led him to meet the criteria for impairment across different areas of his life. So, of course, he hadn't just developed ADHD when his uh, child was born, but it it was that question around, does he meet the criteria for impairment? He didn't. Now he does.
0: Is that something you see... Commonly, uh, that that people would become more aware of their impairments after big changes in their lives, that that might be a. Yeah. Right. Okay.
1: Sometimes people talk about, you know, when the um, demands exceed capacity. And that's actually been a, a bit of a change, certainly in, the, in terms of the autism diagnosis. It used to be quite clear cut that there must be difficulties bef- before three years to get diagnosis. Now they talk much more about, okay, it will be an early childhood, they relax that, but the but that the symptoms may not manifest until demands exceed capacity. So that's, you know, a point at which, hold on a second, I can manage just like this. I can, you know, I've got lots of support. But You think about primary school, you know, Generally, you have, you know, one teacher, if not, you know, not many different teachers, you have one classroom, um, peers and families, uh, you know, if peers are more understanding, play dates get arranged by parents, when you move into secondary school, the demands increase so dramatically in terms of your executive function demands you have to um, suddenly know where you're meant to be which classroom which teacher which books you need what you know where where what you're meant to have done homework all of that executive function stuff social relationships become much more demanding the nuances of social relationships and you know emotional um, relationships and of course you throw hormones into the mix as well which is difficult enough for anyone, let alone somebody with neurodevelopmental um, difficulties.
0: Speaking of sort of hormones and hormonal differences, um, I I wondered if you could talk about how ADHD differs between males and females.
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting um, discussion and, and quite a complex one. I think one of the difficulties is that we do know that from community samples that um, there are many females out there who are undiagnosed and untreated. The ratio between male to female diagnoses in ADHD, depending on the research, can vary from three to one males to females to sixteen to one um, males to females. So, you know that we we know that we we see the diagnosis overrepresented in males, but the degree of the discrepancy depends on um, on the research you're looking at, but what we do know is that there are more, um, that those ratios are in relation to clinical referrals. Um, So we know that many, many, many more males get referred to clinical services uh, than females. Again, the research, you know, there's some, there's a meta-analysis that that shows that um, females have lower symptoms of hyperactive, impulsive symptoms of ADHD or of all symptoms of ADHD. But when you look at the individual studies, it's really quite mixed. Um, so we still have a lot of questions around um, the prevalence of ADHD in females and also um, some of the reasons for those. Um, one thing that we talk about is the uh, females, again, it not being on people's radars so much. And also a lot of in males, you tend to see more of the externalizing problems coinciding with ADHD. So things like oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, rule breaking, those difficulties tend to be more prevalent in males with ADHD. In females, you may be more likely to see internalizing disorders, like anxiety, depression, emotional problems. Uh, They're more often reported in females. So
0: eating disorders as well,
1: right? Eating disorders in both males and females, interestingly. The, there is research indicating it, that um, it's increased in both males and females, which is very interesting. So, one of the things we need to think about is why are females not being referred? Is there a kind of inherent bias in the way that people are thinking about females and ADHD? Um, I believe there's some research, and I can't remember the reference, but I think there was some research about teachers reading descriptions of two children and being more likely to suggest that. The uh, the child should have a referral and will be better able to access help if they were described as a male than female, even though they have the same presentation. So there's certainly a, a question around um, why are females not being referred for the assessment in the first place? I see a lot of adult females who have been um, diagnosed with ADHD who have actually been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder because we see a lot of kind of the impulsive behavior um we see emotional dysregulation so that's quite a common misdiagnosis um that females are maybe more likely to get that diagnosis in adulthood than ADHD
0: it would be hugely helpful if we could just have a female character with ADHD who came to prominence in culture in some way because i don't think i don't think you see a lot of that you know even someone just in a film or something
1: oh yes yeah,
0: um, you see little clips going around on social media of of quirky young men yeah. with ADHD, I mean, it'd be good to see a little bit more of that. Because yeah. I mean, what 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 impacts do you think potentially girls being misdiagnosed or diagnosed with different things um, when when there is also underlying ADHD? What kind of impact does that have on?
1: Oh, I think the impact is huge in terms of them, you know, not being able to access the right support in terms of. impact on social relationships on their functioning and in all all areas of their life really in terms of you know work relationships you know most intimate relationships and friendships you know being able to access education support mental health is huge you know not having undiagnosed uh, adhd and not being identified and treated has huge implications for um, secondary mental health problems, anxiety, depression, substance misuse. You know, if people aren't aware of that, you know, people may find their ways of managing it. um, And that may be through substances. I'm very interested actually in the the whole idea of ADHD and self-identity, particularly when people are diagnosed in adulthood, because I think, so many of the symptoms that we that we're looking at in adhd can be described as part of somebody's personality and they are you know you are part of somebody's personality so when people have a diagnosis i think particularly in adolescence or adulthood i think there's often a question around what's me what's adhd especially if they take medication, some people take medication, and actually that will have an impact on how they feel, how they behave. And, you know, many people will talk about, well, I don't feel like me when I'm on the medication, or I don't really know what is me and what is the ADHD, as if it's the kind of external thing, for, you know, separate from them. Um, and I don't think there's enough um focus on this issue actually i think it's very important in terms of self-esteem and you know mental well-being uh, that we think how can people come to terms with this as a new new diagnosis for them what it means for them as an individual and how it can be assimilated into their self concept and i think that's quite a complicated complicated area and i think it's a very important one because we know that many people with ADHD have lower self-esteem Um, They've grown up being very often told of the things that they can't do, the things they struggle with. That's being, you know, why can't you just do this? Uh, You know, lots of kind of negative language often used because they're struggling with things that um, kids are just expected to do. And to be constantly looking around thinking, why can they do that? It seems such a simple thing and I can't. The, The diagnosis and the impact on self concept is huge, I think, for many people.
0: I, I completely agree i I, I often wonder about I mean, I'm, I mean I got my diagnosis when I was eight or nine and and I sort of rejected it mm-hmm. for years um and ran from it and I would imagine that's quite a common thing really yeah. or or just be straight out embarrassed by it and it's a very complicated thing for a it's quite a complicated thing to be honest for an adult to think through yeah um and so so for for a young child it must just be well I know it's a very difficult thing to come to terms with yes um well actually I wanted to to stick on this topic slightly um because I I have a couple of friends who 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 work as teachers Mm -hmm. and they tell me that they still find their colleagues saying when 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 they point out a a child that they think might have autism or ADHD or something else, um, that their colleagues still say, oh, we don't want to label them. Mm. And I couldn't quite believe it when I heard this, because I thought this was something that was kind of a relic from, from my time at school. Can could you maybe talk a little bit about why um, it's maybe not such a bad thing for a child to receive a, a label? just in terms of maybe the support they can get and, and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, actually, I'm, I think, I'm really glad you asked this because it's, um, it's such an important issue. And, and actually, yes, from I've heard that from teachers, but very much from parents as well, like a real sort of, you know, reluctance to use labels. And, and I, I'm always interested in the reasoning behind that. So I think really what you're saying, we shouldn't be giving labels without a comprehensive assessment so there's that second part we shouldn't um, we should not be diagnosing or ruling out a diagnosis without sufficient evidence um, I do think that people are acutely aware of uh, diagnostic labels and the stigma that may be attached to those and the impact that might have uh, in terms of long you know long term, Implications for things like employment, and I think there's a you know very big concern. if if we if we label this child, they then the label cannot be taken away. That's it for life. But it's really, I think it's talking through with people what that label means. Really, I mean, a label is only as useful as the support it can give give somebody. Um, It doesn't change who the person is. It doesn't change, you know have a wonderful psychiatrist who always says that, you know, to the parents, you know, it won't make you love them any more. It won't make you love them any less. It's so true. You know, it's it's more of a descriptive term to help people understand this collection of difficulties and access support, which we know is often helpful for people who have a similar collection of difficulties. And I think the important thing is as well, understanding the issues around disclosure and when people are required to disclose a diagnosis and how that's done. A lot of people assume that they have to go on, on medication if, they, if their child, you know, they have to go or their child has to go on medication. You know, I don't want them to be labelled. I don't want them going on medication. OK, that's it's about working out and understanding where the reluctance is. Sometimes I've, I've had people say to me around, you know, autism. You know, he, he there's no way he has autism. He's he's really intelligent. And you, you know, a lot of it is around misconceptions, around ADHD, around autism, and that's why they don't want to diagnose, I think, a lot of the time. And a lot of it is fear and anxiety-based and very understandably so. So it, I think it's about working out what are those fears and anxieties, making sure that people are um, able to access the information they need um, so that they can weigh up all the information and make a decision about whether they want to go down the, a path for an assessment or not.
0: But also perhaps an awareness that there are actually quite a few services for, you know, particularly young adults, uh, including students, where you you have to have a diagnosis to access that service, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And and we, when I was working at the um, special school you know there were a couple of kids who you were pretty sure had adhd or autism or whatever but just didn't have a diagnosis yeah. and couldn't access some of the support services because they didn't have the diagnosis yeah. which was which was rough and also with um student support yeah. right with certain kinds of student uh, support when you're at university when you've lost your support network and not having a diagnosis can be a, a massive problem yeah if you do actually have the, the condition
1: you know what I find really heartbreaking as well. Working in forensic populations, if I'm doing um, parent interviews, taking developmental histories, and I've had quite a few parents say, "Oh yeah, they said he had ADHD, but I didn't. We didn't. I didn't want them to have a label, so we never. You know, we never went went through with the assessment." And I just think, you know, I often think, I re- it's really important that we understand those decisions because actually. This young person who was in his 20s and had, you know, had followed a kind of fairly typical trajectory of somebody with ADHD entering into the criminal justice system. And I just thought, I wonder what, it, you know, we need to understand these decisions, why people don't want to go down that that route of having an assessment um, so that these kids are not missing out on support that could ultimately really be life changing for them. It doesn't have to be medication for everybody. In terms of research, we know that the combination of uh, pharmaceutical and non and, uh, pharmaceutical interventions is most effective. But you know, it's about people having access to accurate information.
0: But even, even, even. Um, I mean, we've talked about that. You know, that there's there's a, there can be a lot of confusion with having the diagnosis. Um, I, I, w- I would say, from my perspective, I found later on in, in my life that having the diagnosis and therefore a kind of explanation was actually quite therapeutic Mm. um and that otherwise i think i might have well have leaned towards an understanding of of there being something wrong with me or broken or a whole load of other things that could then have led to a whole series of other negative outcomes right
1: Um, yeah you know what i see a lot actually in um if people get diagnosed in adulthood it's actually for many people a huge almost like a grief response to think if if i if this had been diagnosed in childhood how could my life have been different if you know and actually sometimes you get quite a lot of anger towards parents towards teachers towards people who you think you know if people have got into, for example into their 30s and they only receiving a diagnosis of ADHD in adulthood, particularly if they then have access intervention and medication, and it has a huge difference for them, it has a really positive impact. Then many people will go through, you know, quite a long period of time of saying, "My whole life could have been different if this had been picked up earlier." And and there's a huge, you know, it's like a yeah. kind of anger, grief for the life they could have had, the grief for the life that they imagined they could have had, and also anger towards the people that they felt should have picked it up and that's not uncommon with you know with people i've seen not it's not always the case. of course it depends on the individual but it's something that's come up quite a bit you
0: you you, uh briefly touched on your work in forensics and i really i'm really interested to hear more about this um so could you maybe talk just a just uh in more detail about some of the kind of things that you've done some of the kind of projects you've worked on why this work interests you some interesting characters and...
1: sure yeah no shortage of those yeah. um i've always <laughs> i've always i mean since the end of primary school i wanted to work with forensic populations i remember in, in year six at school i really i decided that i wanted to work with youth offending at that point point. In secondary school i became really interested in you know, forensics. I was particularly interested in female offenders and, like Myra Hindley and that kind of thing. <laughs> it sounds quite dark, but I've always had right. a real fantasy. in a kind of <laughs> yeah. morbid,
0: yeah. morbid fascination way. But yeah, I've always yeah. been
1: very interested in uh, you know in forensic settings and what I suppose what what leads people into those situations so i was involved in some research work looking at undiagnosed adhd and autism in a different adult, adult mental health services which included secure hospitals like broadmoor uh medium secure hospitals so I, i've been involved in research projects in these settings but also i've been involved in lots of um, assessments of both autism and ADHD at different stages of the criminal justice system you know pre trial or while people are within a prison setting around them you know often often stuck in the in a prison setting because they're not able to access the interventions or programs that other people are accessing because of their neurodevelopmental conditions. So whether that's, you know, if, if you think about um, something like a, a group intervention, you're expected to sort of sit with other people, concentrate on what the people are saying and respond to that. You're meant to show victim empathy. You're meant to um, show personal insight. You know, you need to be showed that you're engaged. If you have ADHD or autism or a combination of those things, your ability to participate in that kind of intervention and to uh, engage in the way that, that they're looking for you to engage is going to be impacted uh, inevitably. So um, you, f- you, I do find that people can be kind of stuck um, within uh, the prison system at, at some point. And also like considerations around uh, transitioning back into the community as well if people have got a parole hearing what things might we need to think about and so i'm involved in lots of training as well so training um, staff working in prisons and secure hospitals Um, i've got a particular interest in neurodevelopmental disorders and personality disorders and understanding the overlaps and, you know, uh, unpicking those, which is very, very complicated. But So I, ha- I sort of have a combination of, of um, experience in research, in doing the assessments and the kind of clinical side of that, and also the training of professionals. And I really, I find it endlessly complex and endlessly interesting. And it's brilliant to be working with other professionals, because it's there's, there's such such complex issues very often. So that's a sort of overview.
0: Okay. The, the the two the two main sort of subtopics within within that one was the kind of challenges that people that you are working with face, um, and so I imagine those will be different depending on 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 the setting mm. and and what some of their trajectories have been to get there. If you were comfortable in doing it, it, w- it would be great to hear a couple of anonymous case studies. But yeah. it might be, it might be that you've got a protect identities and that sort of thing so
1: no I mean I I can talk you through a a type of trajectory that we see commonly of course it will will vary and I can do that without breaching any kind of confidentiality so I'm also aware that when I talk about this trajectory it can sound quite sort of doom and gloom and of course this is not you know the expected trajectory for children with ADHD but in terms of we think if we're looking at the pattern of how people might end up getting involved in the criminal justice system this is a fairly um not unusual type of presentation so you know if kids are struggling at school from a young age they because they're struggling with um you know think about combined presentation just for this example if if people are struggling to access education because they can't concentrate they can't engage they're not able to keep up they're falling out they're sort of falling behind in school because they're, um, they're struggling to access it because of their difficulties you might see a child who is falling behind educationally is getting bored might be end up being like the, a bit like the classroom clown making jokes doing kind of silly or misbehaving to try and get positive feedback from peers and kind of you know getting in trouble in the classroom for doing things that are impulsive people talk about the kind of persistent disruptive behavior like you know fiddling flicking someone's ear you know these things that actually are, seem relatively minor but when you're trying to teach your class may have quite an impact um so education school is not going well sometimes peer rejection because of things like impulsivity you know many people with adhd will have social communication difficulties they might say something um impulsive and upset someone and then you know without meaning to so sometimes people you know well actually quite often people will describe having difficulties with peers they may have lots of sort of superficial friendships and you know someone said oh you know he's got a million people who give him a high five or i give him a cigarette but he's got no one he would go to the cinema with. So people sometimes will, uh, are more vulnerable to getting involved with gangs or with older children or or young adults. People may be willing to take more risks or they might end up being that one person in the group who will do, do that, you know, who will break in and steal that thing or will try and jump off a, a roof because, you know, having... More of a kind of an adrenaline-seeking type behaviours. Huge factor is substance misuse and and the way uh, you know people using alcohol, cannabis, uh, cocaine particularly to self-medicate, and then all of the risks that come along with that. It also may be that they're more likely to get caught. If they're committing crimes as well so they're just some of the examples of and the impulsivity is often what people get into trouble in terms of like violence hitting people and it's also what people gets people into trouble within prison because if you're inattentive in prison if, unless you're you know it can have obviously inattention can have an impact on accessing intervention treatment programs education but what often gets people into trouble is they do something impulsive or they're struggling with emotional regulation. So they get angry and they might hit somebody, do it impulsively, um, without thinking.
0: Even within prison, right? Uh, I read a uh, couple of studies showing the number of violent incidents um, higher among ADHD inmates, right?
1: Yes, yeah. So this, you know, that, that's the sound of it, but they are, they are all things that I've described that are examples of vulnerabilities as to why people may be more likely to end up within the criminal justice system. Um, and of course, people take different routes, but they're things that we see quite commonly, you know, falling out of education, trying to do things to impress peers, be more willing to take risks, um, involved in drug and alcohol misuse. And there's a lot of vulnerable people who really want to have friendships and are willing to do, commit crimes and take risks um, in order to try and be accepted by a group.
0: So what are some of the scary statistics for for some of these people that have just just fallen off, off the grid, kind of? Um, I mean, we know that they're about a quarter of prisoners, according to some estimates. I know gambling, problem gambling, right? It's, it's a very big problem.
1: Yes, yeah. And also, actually, um, driving accidents as well. Right. How much more likely to be involved in driving Um if you think well, if you think about it in terms of impulsivity and inattention, as the difficulties is with ADHD, and when you put that into people driving, that the rates of accidents are much higher for for ADHD. I mean, and, it's, and it's, I mean, right from the beginning, your school exclusions are higher. Uh, rates of co-occurring co- mental health difficulties are higher than the general population. Um, substance misuse and and addiction more generally, and of course your antisocial behaviour. Um, which may be conduct disorder in childhood and then into adulthood, you know, aggression and behaviour problems as well. So, I mean, it does sound kind of doom and gloom, but that's partly because we're talking about in the context of people ending up in the in the criminal justice system. And it's very interesting hearing people, seeing those people who actually had a diagnosis in childhood. I do see quite a few people in, in um, prison who had a diagnosis in childhood, but no one's really picked up on that. So, we'll be going through the records and think. Oh, hold on a second. You, you diagnosed. let's say that you were diagnosed at ADHD at nine years old. You put on uh, methylphenidate. What can you tell me a bit more about that? They're like, Oh, yeah, it really helped me, but then uh, stopped helping me, so I didn't take the medication anymore because of not. Had, you know, they may not have had. Uh, you know, medication review that you know, it needs to be. They need to. It needs to be titrated and you know and reviewed. And I actually you think. Okay, so you had a diagnosis and it's just kind of fallen off. And no one's really mentioned it since you've been in prison. And then people say, yeah, yeah, I haven't got it anymore. When well, they clearly have. Or they don't want to be labelled because it makes them different. They don't want to take medication because they might want to, I don't know, they don't want the, the idea, oh, I know someone with ADHD and they, and they take the medication and they, they don't have an appetite, they can't bulk up at the gym or whatever their reasons are. Um, so sometimes it's there, the, di- the childhood diagnosis is there, but no one's really picked up on it since they've been in prison.
0: To kind of, um, I'm I'm still a little bit unclear on. So with with forensics, are you more working in the research side of things in forensics?
1: Not now, no.
0: Are you more working in the therapy and
1: in the clinical? Yeah, and not in the therapy in the in the assessment more than. I mean, I did work for a while as a. Uh, I worked in prison with um sex offenders, working therapeutically with a psychotherapy team, um, but currently, my main work. forensics is doing the autism and adhd assessments and then uh, doing consultancy work with teams to say these are things we need to consider and also the the training so i'm training professionals on adhd and autism so that's my main work in forensics now previously i've I've been involved in research projects and um, therapeutic work but now it's mainly diagnostic assessments and training
0: so, so we've been working on a really interesting project with with Perth Prison, yeah. Um, and and they we're really lucky with them. I think that that they are. There's a group of uh, a small group of staff there that are really, you know, really want to learn more about about this, and they've been very accommodating to us. And and I think that um, it's a it's a relationship that's sort of mutually beneficial for for everyone. And and it got me thinking about you. You do training for prison staff is that correct
1: yeah yeah so I've done actually interestingly I've done a range of training so sometimes my training is is specifically around diagnosis and that might be more for psychiatrists um, psychologists speech and language therapists occupational therapists sometimes I'm training prison officers so it's you know it's not so much about making a diagnosis it's more about kind of general awareness uh, an understanding of the conditions and i've also been involved in training peer mentors so the prisoners who are put themselves forward as peer mentors on the on the wings so actually i've trained groups of prisoners on adhd and autism which i absolutely love doing because um you know it's just it's it's fantastic and so many of them in the in the workshops i've run with the prisoners themselves are really you know brilliantly attuned to this thing they've got a lot of adhd around them either it's diagnosed or not they may identify some things themselves so I I do quite a lot of that work as well which I absolutely love they're not obviously they're not going to diagnose uh you know it's it's part of their you know sometimes they have sessions on learning about depression or anxiety and one of the ones I run is on ADHD and I do one on autism for the prisoners so that's fantastic so it depends at kind of the group that I'm training about of the type of training that I'll be doing
0: for the prison staff do you notice uh what what are their kind of responses to kind of becoming aware of of ADHD?
1: It's interesting, actually. It's um, it actually <laughs> imagine it's really varies. I think, I think many people are still in the in the view. It's like, oh, it's ADHD. Some people are very very interested and they really want to engage. Especially when they can hear you talking about ADHD and you think, yes, this applies. I see this on a daily basis. So I think you've got to make it. The training has to um, speak to them. And it has to be relevant to them there's no good going in and start talking about you know really far removed things around genetics or brain structure or stuff not that i'm saying that they wouldn't be able to access that information just that i think for people to be engaged in it they have to it has to speak to them and makes make sense to their day-to-day work so i think as long as you're making it apply to what they're doing and be useful then people are more likely to be engaged a lot of things people will say why do you do that to someone with adhd and it's impulsive and they don't know why they've done it it's just a really impulsive thing. So, you know, those kind of, and that can kind of inflame situations if, if somebody's kind of just impulsive. Well, why did you do that? Why did you do it? And you keep going and they don't actually know um, themselves why they've done it because it was just such an impulsive thing. So those kind of discussions and conversations and bringing in their experiences, I think, can be really helpful.
0: And also, obviously, they're, they're often they're struggling with communication difficulties as yes. well, right? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. We've done a couple of, I'm not, hasn't gone communication passports because that's more of a, school thing um, but yeah. we, we, we've we done a little bit of work communicating with the prison with a few prisoners who have it who just weren't really capable of doing it themselves um, and apparently it, it it did make a big impact and it was what we did was very simple you know <laughs> mm. basically just the most simple thing and about about what they might struggle with and, and this sort of thing.
1: Well I think sometimes actually very simple changes can be very effective. It's just knowing what those might be and what works for the individuals. So rather than kind of repeatedly kind of bashing your head against the same things and not getting anywhere, it's like, well, this isn't working. We need to think about something that's something different when you think of a a different way to relate to this this person and to, to engage them.
0: What what are some of the most Do you think would be some of the most successful ways of 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 rehabilitating um, or reducing recidivism among those with with ADHD?
1: I think it needs to be a combination. As you know, it's all the research points to a combination of of different approaches. So, I mean, if people want medication, can be very effective for many people, and there's different types of medication, you know. Uh, some medication is more suitable for people who have a history of substance misuse, for example. Um, so there's uh, different medications that are at the, you know, the correct dose for the individual. And also, I think there's a major difficulty sometimes with um, continuity when people are transitioning from prison into the community. Um, you know, to keep that the prescription and the um, the medication up across that transition. Um, so you're finding some somebody who is wing unable to prescribe as you move from prison into the community. So that's one of the key things like continuity with medication. Um, psychological interventions and, and psychoeducation are really important. Susie, Susie Young's done um, some ADHD specific and mental health specific reasoning and re- rehabilitation programs, uh, which are very effective. And you know potentially the sort of one-to-one work as well. Um, and I do think psychoeducation are, is really important. You know, people understanding actually what is ADHD, people understanding, especially around things like medication, you know, the number of people who uh, are on medication in childhood and then it, it's it, the medication is less effective so they just stop taking it rather than thinking, okay, this will change over time. Actually, adolescence and adulthood may be a really, really important time for you to be having the support from pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical interventions but if, if people think okay well medication doesn't work anymore I'm going to stop using it and then they just cut it off and that's it they need to have an understanding of of the impact of that decision to stop or continue medication what ADHD is when they're expected to disclose it in, in different situations you know there's sometimes questions around going to the army and things like declaring it to the DVLA so ha- having an understanding of those different things
0: I wanted to finish or since, since a lot of the work you you deal with is is with really vulnerable troubled people and obviously are the the extreme end of outcomes mm-hmm. for for those with ADHD. Yeah. I kind of want I wanted to wind down on a more positive note if we could. Yeah. And and, and that was with the question what do you think ADHD contributes to the world?
1: so much um i absolutely love working with adhd i love how refreshing it can be how creative people can be how it's kind of shaking up the way we see things the way we do things or why why don't we do it this way it's just different it's such a refreshing new important perspective on life and day-to-day things and the degree of you know creativity i also feel very very energized very often when i'm working with adhd you know myself, I've got kind of it can be very invigorating to have you know conversations with people who are very dynamic and think in, in different ways and creative ways. I just think there is so much that the world and society could learn from neurodiversity so much. And I think I think that it is is changing, but I think we still have a a very long way to go in terms of shaking things up and saying, hold on a second there are millions of people out there who have different ways of seeing the world, different ways of doing things, different uh, the ways that deviate from what's neurotypical. And we need to open our eyes to that and, you know, embrace the, the brilliance of it. Basically. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> That's my thoughts.
0: Yeah. It answers my question perfectly. I, I was going to add to that, that. I often, I often feel slightly, slightly sorry for people who see someone who is noticeably different and, dismiss them yes. because i think that they are robbing themselves of of often quite an interesting um world expanding experience yeah um you, you some of some of the people that that might first strike you as as odd or abrasive or all these other things can yeah. be some of the most interesting people you can meet
1: i this is one of the things i love most about the, this type of work is that I'm constantly having my eyes open to different perspectives of seeing different ways of seeing the world, different perspectives, different takes, different perceptions. And makes me realise that mine is, my view on the world is one of many and uh, very often it's uh, kind of more boring mainstream one. And I like having that shaken up. I think it's, you know, and I I hope that, that as a society, we move we move forwards and, and actually begin to recognize and value and embrace the brilliance of different perspectives and b- different ways of seeing the world
0: amen what a great way <laughs> to end the podcast pleasure. thank you very much for joining me emma
1: absolute pleasure thank you
0: cheers